the incomparable. Number 517, May 2020. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and this episode is Old Movie Club. Movie Club. Old Movie Club. We're going to talk about two films based on novels by Raymond Chandler, both uh, with screenplays with Leigh Brackett as a contributor. Uh, 1946's The Big Sleep, starring Humphrey Bogart as Philip Marlowe, the detective. And... 1973's The Long Goodbye, starring Elliot Gould. <laughs> you know, very similar to Humphrey Bogart as Philip Marlowe, uh, directed uh, by Robert Altman, The Big Sleep, directed by Howard Hawks. Radically different things with similar source material. Kind of fascinating. Um, I'm joined, as always, on the old movie club by the person who made us watch these two movies in particular, Philip Michaels. Hello. Thank you. I get $50 a day plus expenses, so uh, uh-huh. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about why you selected these films, um, but uh, let me introduce the rest Sounds of our like panel. Sounds like an accusation, but okay. Okay, I mean, maybe. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Drang joins us from the internet. Hello. Hello. I'm going to be smoking throughout, so if you hear the match scratching across the microphone, that's me. Yep, yep. Oh, boy. Yeah, I got thoughts about that. Monty Ashley is also here. Hello. Hi. And, you know, watching these movies... It's okay with me. Like that one guy says a lot. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, joining us, the host of the Incomparable's at very own specific old movie podcast. Not a club. It's Lions, Towers, and Shields. It's Shelley Brisbane. Hello. Hi. I'll be right with you. I'm going out to look for my chauffeur. I'll be right back. Mm. Oh, man. So, Phil, why? why? I mean, obviously, these are very different kinds of movies from very different eras with this thing in common. Uh, which is that they're based on Raymond Chandler novels about P.I. Philip Marlowe. Uh, is that is that the the whole premise here? <laughs> yeah, that was sort of the idea. Two very different takes on on uh, the old detective story. One that's kind of um, true to the 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 uh, Raymond Chandler roots, and one that uh, sort of modernizes it for the time that it's in. And um, it, I know which one I prefer. Um, the answer may surprise you, but mm. uh, um, why don't we start with the uh, with the old one first? Yeah, so we're gonna take the next six hours to do a plot synopsis of the <laughs> no, next one, and then there will be a quiz, which none of you will pass. Absolutely no. not. I I actually um, uh, finished watching this right before we began recording, and I could not I, on my life. If you held if you held up one of the guns in the movie to my head and told me to recite the plot that I had just seen an hour ago, I could not do it so we're gonna we're gonna uh forego that yeah people who like plot summaries here's, so here's sorry. my summary humphrey bogart begins unraveling one he pulls on a thread mm-hmm. of a case and it just continues to unravel and occasionally somebody is murdered horribly and there are other cases that come out and it just keeps on going like every time you think you're like all right i see now it's these two things and then it's like oh no here's another thing that's related to this other thing and it just keeps going and and by the end of it i don't know how many people are dead but mm-hmm. like there have been very few timely phone calls to the police during the entire time as philip marlowe watches more and more people die horribly yes some of the dead people we haven't even met Sure. My 500-yard summary would be Philip Marlowe is hired by General Sternwood to look into uh, uh, 
a uh, blackmail case against his his youngest daughter, who's who's quite the piece of work, as we might mm. say. Um, and in doing in 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 settling that fairly straightforward case, we find other cases involving missing show murdered chauffeurs and missing uh, henchmen, and uh, it all uh, seems to interconnect the Sternwood family and and a and a two bit gambler and. Um, uh, Philip Marlowe finds himself increasingly immersed in this uh, in this story, and that's the that's the movie. And also, I mean, we should say that one of the general's daughters is played by Lauren Bacall, and they they actually shot this movie and went back a year later and shot more stuff with Bogart and Bacall because they were a thing, and they were and boy were they ever. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, there were several moments having having read about that in watching this, there were several moments where I could see that the ridiculously twisty turny plot just gets put on pause for a moment as we have a lengthy scene with Bogart and Bacall. And you know what? I was fine with it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> these are incredibly charismatic people saying interesting things to each other. And I really don't know what's happening in the plot. So whatever, just talk. That's great. He is 46 when this movie is made and she is 22, but she is the only person in the movie that is his equal. Everybody else, he banters right past and doesn't care and, ah, shut up. She is not dressed or performing like a 22-year-old. She is given all the weight he is, and it's great, and I love every scene with them. Allegedly, this is the movie where Howard Hawks kind of settled on the idea that people really don't care about plots anymore so long as everyone is having a good time and the characters Mm -hmm. are enjoyable. So just have the threadest of threads going through from beginning to end. The way the story goes is that this was shot during the war, which is why Mm. there are war elements like a picture of Roosevelt on the wall and a woman driving a cab. And all the cars have the the gas rationing uh, uh, labels on them. Right. And then so they shot it during the war um, and then they then they made a cut of the movie that they didn't release, except they showed it to some uh, servicemen during the war. Right. And and then they reshot to add more Bogart and Bacall. And, and the story goes that Howard Hawks was of the opinion that he could cut. Because apparently, because the 45 cut has been released now in a restored version uh, in 1997, um, apparently it's more coherent in terms of the plot. And I think it's an interesting choice that Howard Hawks made, which is like, eh, I don't care. <laughs> like, I don't care about yeah. the plot if it's more confusing. It apparently has the the scene where the detective explains who killed who, <laughs> which is... Definitely uh, lacking from this version. There are also some plot holes that were created by the production code because in the book there are a lot of elements that you can not get on screen <laughs> at all. And then there are elements that they sort of left a few threads in the movie, which make a lot more sense if you've either read the book or read the synopsis of the book. All the talk about I read pictures. the book. That's the funny thing is I, I keep thinking, well, wait a second. I read the book like 20 years ago. And, and like the the scene with the general in the in the greenhouse is a very memorable scene. It's pretty good in this movie too, and I love the general. And we don't we never see him again. But like that's a that that's a that's an interesting because he's like, yes, my daughters are wild, and well, I asked for it having children so late in life. <laughs> okay, I kind of like this guy as Bogart is drenched in sweat in the in the greenhouse. I, I love I love that. But yeah, it's definitely uh, an interesting. Uh, since we have both versions of the movie, we can see that. Um, this was a decision to make it like not matter that the plot doesn't matter. And that's good because it, it it's really confusing and it sweeps you along. But like, don't stop to say, well, wait a second. Why is that? Mm? I'm going to show my cards here. 
I really love Howard Hawks. I think he's one of my favorite directors. And when I rattle off my list of Howard Hawks movies, I'll say like Red River and and uh, uh, His Gal Friday and Ball of Fire. And I'll, I'll even start getting into obscure ones like Only Angels Have Wings. And people will go, well, what about The Big Sleep? And I'll go, oh, oh yeah, I, I guess The Big Sleep's okay. And, <laughs> and it, it, it is okay. I Like like I think Monty said, the scenes with Bacall and Bogart are great. And if you uh, release just a smash cut of all their, their moments together... That would be uh, a very watchable uh, short, but I, I think the the lack of plot or the lack of trying to figure <laughs> things out really, I, I'm not wired to think like that, I guess. I don't mind the lack of plot so much, but some of Bogart's motivation in the movie comes from his relationship with characters, and he doesn't have that many scenes with most characters. We already mentioned General Sternwood, who's only in the first scene, but a lot of Bogart's motivation for keeping on with this case is that I like that guy. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the same thing with... Uh, Elisha Cook Jr. later on in the movie, who Bogart talks to for about five minutes and then spends the rest of the movie trying to avenge. Yes. And it it, it feels like there's a lot of relationships like that where Bogart's, when he gets beyond his sort of cynicism and insolence that defines his character, and you can tell he likes somebody, it would be a little great if there was more of a development of the relationship between those characters. Well, but you could say that, I mean, apart from the obvious reason, uh, you know, you could say the same thing about the relationship with Lauren Bacall. You know, wh- why do they love each other? Well, because because they are because they, they are they who they are. Scene with the spunky dialogue. <laughs> a, yeah. yeah, there's the horse sex they said stuff. They said suggestive things about horses. <laughs> yeah. I love someone after that. Elisha Cook Jr. always has to play the crazy guy, like he's the Gunsel and Maltese Falcon. In this movie, it's so nice that he gets to be practically the most normal person. Yeah, but he's the sad sack. It's either crazy guy or sad sack. Is the uh... Sometimes both at the same time. Not mm-hmm. in this case, but often he's a sad sack who's driven to being a crazy guy, which is kind of what I thought was going to happen because it had been a long time since I've seen this. And I love any movie, most movies that Elisha Cook is in because I have that expectation that something crazy is going to happen. And it doesn't really in this case. And he is heroic in this movie. He's, yeah. not, he's not a sad sack who's a coward. No. And that and that's why Bogey likes him. And you know, I I think that that relationship and and, and uh, Marlowe's standing up for uh, what was what the hell was his name anyway? Whatever his name. Henry Henry Harry, Harry. something? Harry, Harry Jones. I think. Harry Jones. Yeah. Not a yeah. memorable name. The, the, the little the, guy. The little guy. Well, you know, the little guy. That in some ways that's the most believable relationship. That and uh in his uh, his relationship with Norris, the butler. Yeah. I think is good too, because he he and Norris understand each other, and they 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 don't have to say much to each other. They just okay. Yes, what does he say? I'm, yes, I'm mistaken quite often, or whatever. Yes, that's <laughs> right. That exactly. character is written really well, though. It's a small part. He's actually in, I guess, three or four scenes because, in addition to interacting with Bogey and the general in the beginning, we see him later on when they're dealing with the the younger daughter, and he just has some great little lines, and just it just underplays nicely. I think Bogart's Philip Mar. Marlowe banters with everybody instinctively. Like, there's the main bookstore he goes to a couple of times, which the movie is not allowed to say sells dirty books. Right. But he also goes across the street to another bookstore. I love that scene so that much. Is a great, oh, yeah. that, is, that is a great scene. That is the best scene in the movie, Nam Lauren Bacall Division. <laughs> yeah. That scene is great because it's all banter. Mm-hmm. But, but getting back to Elisha Cook, what I like is they banter for a bit, and then Elisha basically says, you know, I'm just being straight with you here. And you can kind of see Marlowe go, Oh, oh, that's a straightforward guy. Okay, you know what? Let's go with that. Yeah, because yeah. because one of the things that I love about about Bogart in this is that he 
he's he strikes me as being very sharp and people say things and he's like oh, i don't know like it's a good it's you get the impression that part of the job or the, maybe the main job of being a pi is being um is is basically listening to people say things that are that are lies and and basically discarding it or giving it back right back to them right like he they say people say things to him and he's like yeah but that's not really true right and 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 it makes me like him because it's banter but you can see that he he takes everything and looks at it skeptically um and it does i think lead to the point where elisha cook jr is like oh the kid oh he's he's not lying to me like everybody else in this entire (laughs) movie it's uh it's nice but but like I never, I mean, the, look, so much about movies is, 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 um, just the charisma of actors and you have Bogart and Bacall and it's, I mean, it's spectacular. It, it, it really is. Although yes, the, also the lady in the bookshop across the street is a pretty great moment, but you know, Bogart himself, like the, the guy, I mean, there's a reason people talk about Humphrey Bogart to this day as a, an exemplar of being a movie star. He, he, you see it in, in here, every scene that he's in and he's in most of them and he is, you can see him thinking and, and reacting and, and responding quickly to everything that's said to him. And it's, that part of it is delightful, even though I, yes, the, the plot itself, I just keep, thinking what huh what i i think i would feel more warmly towards the movie because we've mentioned a lot of the the uh supporting characters in here like the butler and 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 elisha cook jr and and dorothy malone as the as the surprisingly uh game books bookstore owners (laughs) we haven't mentioned any of the villains and i think the, the 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 baddies in this movie are so cookie cutter and um interchangeable that at many times I, I have a hard time keeping Eddie Mars straight from Joe Brody and, and whatever <laughs> other very, and, and there's another guy, Canino that, that, that comes in. They're all the same. And they, they, they're, there's no real, Ooh, that guy's sinister. Like, uh, like, a, a Kirk Douglas in, um, in, um, uh, the Robert Mitchum movie blanking on it out of the, out past. Of the past, out of the past. So, uh, but, but there you go. Ooh, that bad guy is very charismatic. Whereas here, the, this bad guy is present. <laughs> and- <laughs> but see that, that gets back to the whole name thing, because there's so many names mentioned in this, in this movie and you either don't meet them or you meet them briefly. And because those villains are interchangeable, you're like, wait, Brody Mars, yeah. which is that? And mm-hmm. how would I know? Canino is the only one that I could remember at all, because that at least was a, a recognizable a name, part. right? And, yeah. well, and it it's is not a, even yeah. the name. I mean, he's actually the one that's putting the hurt on people. Exactly. And he's he is sinister. memorable. I, he I killed think he's the guy the best I care about. Yeah. And, he's the best yeah. of the villains. And, and, and then he gets it. <laughs> I mean, that's, yes. that's the thing. He gets it full, Very quickly. full, full, full frontal from Philip Marlowe. He, he just gets shot. So, yeah. like, yeah, that's a, that's a good I'm over moment. Here, pal. Bang, bang. 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 so jeez. <laughs> but you're right. I, I do agree that you've got a lot of kind of really generic guys who are these uh these bad guys the gam there's the gambler and there's you know it's just it's just yeah and we haven't even mentioned geiger who's the whole baddie that sets the plot in plot such as it is in motion and gets all of like uh, not even a line just gets to ride in the car and then gets shot right right the bookstore bookstore guy and yeah to shelly's mm-hmm. point it's pornography and they're taking they're taking dirty pictures of of carmen um, but that's all in the book and in the movie, they can't do that. It's also strongly implied the gay relationship between the bookstore owner and the guy who has keys to the, the house and comes in while they're in there. But like in the, in the movie, you just can't. And, and so they don't. And it, 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 you lose a layer 
in doing that too because i i keep feeling in both of these movies and having read some chandler like chandler is all about the seamy underbelly it's all about la is especially like with the, with these in la it's it's everything on the surface is bright and shiny and it's stars and famous people and rich people and all that and you look a little bit closer and it's all filthy like mm-hmm. everything is bad and the people are bad. You scratch a little bit and it all comes apart and it's awful. Like that's what you expect here. And then by sanitizing it, like they kind of had to do because of the the code, um, you lose you lose that. You lose that aspect of it, which the other movie that we're going to talk about um, doesn't do, I would say. <laughs> but mm-hmm. this one, this one does. You wouldn't even actually know this was set in L.A. unless you you were familiar with the source material. Yeah, or the street names, I guess, because yeah. we, we see some street names that are, or they, we hear some street names that are, are relevant. But yeah, yeah. I, you know, I enjoyed this movie, but the plot, yeah, the plot just is intricate. You never, there's no through line. And I think that this is something that comes from the source material too, because you see it a little bit in the long goodbye as well, which is Chandler seems to really like this idea that there's a straightforward mystery that immediately spins out of control into all sorts of other interrelated mysteries. And unless you're paying very close attention, and in this case, not even then for this movie, it's very hard. You start to say, well, wait a second, you know, and, and famously the question of the chauffeur, right? Like, the sh- did the chauffeur die or commit suicide? Well, in the movie, he commits suicide or he dies. But he's murdered um, mm-hmm. because he takes a blackjack to the side of the head before his car ends up in the drink. But when pressed on who exactly killed him, there's no answer. And I think there's no answer because I think in Chandler's book, even though Chandler couldn't remember, I think suicide is a more likely scenario. <laughs> but the movie just has him be murdered by unnamed. It says so much that like, uh, we don't even know. So surely one of these bad guys must have killed him. Did sure. Brody kill him? It's unclear. Or did that turn out to be it's, not, yeah, it's, not it's, true. It's not stated. It's, it's unclear. Yeah. Maybe it's logical. I mean, why not? But it's not <laughs> stated. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, oh, honestly, let us say Brody. I don't give a damn about the plot yeah. in this movie. And I and that's the right it, way to live. <laughs> it carries me along. And honestly, I hate to say this. I often don't care about I don't care about plots in lots of movies if they're carrying me along and if there's mm. enough other things that are interesting about the movie. And in this movie, it is the atmosphere. It is the characters. It is. Uh, uh, you're right. Uh, uh, other, uh, you know, the uh, other than uh, Lash Canino, uh, which is. <laughs> Mm. Lash Camino oh, was played Camino. by Bob Steele, which is so good. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, yeah they could have just <laughs> switched his name. He should have used names. his own name. I know, <laughs> <Yes>. right? <laughs> Big Bob Steele is here. I mean, I feel like, I, I think that's kind of a good point. And I feel like this movie gives you permission to not care about the plot. There's some mysteries where it's all wrapped up in the whodunit aspect and how well the detective is doing as he goes forward. And it's not really about that. It's, it's about Marlowe to a lesser extent. It's about him and Bacall, but it's not about whether he catches this particular guy. I think it would be had they gone back to Sternwood or had they gone back to any of the reasons that he's continuing to do what he's doing. And so that was whether on purpose or accidentally, Hawks made it easier for us to just go along with Marlowe instead of going, yeah, but what about you, you need to report to your boss? We don't care. You have to be a really good filmmaker to sustain this, to be able to do a movie where the plot absolutely doesn't matter and your audience doesn't care. Maybe some 
people in the audience care, but I, I don't. Uh, and, and so I just think it's wonderful. And I do, the one thing that the, that the bad guys are good at in this movie is essentially being stooges to Bogart and the, and the back and forth with them, the whole thing, you know, that's not, that's none of your business or is that any of your business? I could make it my business. I could make your business mine and that you wouldn't like it. The pay's too small. Oh yeah. yeah. That sort of stuff is just, is great. And he does. There's another scene, I can't remember who it's with now because, of course, they're interchangeable, where uh, he, the bad guy is telling him, uh, telling Bogart he's going to make him talk. And they've been doing back and forth banter type stuff, quick, rapid fire uh, stuff. But when he says that, Bogart doesn't say anything. He just shakes his head. Oh, yeah. Which it's, is, uh, it's been which tried. Is perfect. Any good? Yeah. Just shakes his head. And the guy actually accepts like, yeah, probably. Yeah. OK. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. <laughs> well, the, at the end of the movie with with Mars, the way Mars gets it is essentially that Marlowe just outwits him and kind of talks him into <laughs> walking outside and getting shot <laughs> walking by his out own the guys. Door. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Shooting him like in the arm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I trapped you of... in the stupid plot you came up with. <laughs> Why would you tell your minions Definitely kill whoever opens this yeah, door. Do not look at him. <laughs> yes. I'm going to go inside real quick. Yeah, but I love that, right? It's like, uh, uh, ha ha, I gotcha. It's like, oh no. And of course, the minions, having heard gunshots, waited outside for somebody yeah. to come out for them to shoot. One of the minions is just there to keep the other minion company, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> yes, like, right. The, the bad guy knows I've only got one good minion, but eh. <laughs> Well, he had a good minion, and then uh, uh, Bogart then got, kills got him. Killed. Yeah. yeah, so now he has to deal with the this, B this team. This minion here. is my minion's brother-in-law. My sister wanted him to have a job, so you know. Well, I'm going to have more to say about minions in the second movie we talk about. <laughs> oh, yes. A lot of a lot of good scenes in this. I like when he is out at the farmhouse and. Uh, he discovers that Lauren Bacall is there, but then their, oh, their attraction means that she suddenly like kind of flips around and helps him escape and all of that. And then that's when they, that's when he kills Canino. Um, I like, I like that scene with them and, and, uh, uh, Bogart, like there's so many funny lines. The one that is the recurring gag that I really like is he keeps taking everybody else's guns. It's great. And at one point, yes. he's like, well, now that I'm collecting the, all the guns. Yes. I, just... I seem to be collecting guns today, I think is the line. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's, it's great. So, like, yeah. that, that, uh, that, the humor and then the relationship between Bogart and Bacall, like, that's, that's, that's what you're watching for. And the, and the, sure. and the dialogue and, and him having his smart responses to everything everybody says, like, that's all, that's all good. Like, I'm, I'm willing to ride with this movie on all the things that are enjoyable about it, even though every time my brain tries to figure out what's going on, um, uh, Lauren woke up. She fell asleep during the middle of this movie, and then she woke up and she said, "I, I fell asleep for a minute. What's going on?" And I said, "It doesn't. It doesn't matter." Yeah. <laughs> Raymond Chandler's writing advice was famously, "When in doubt, have a man come through the door with a gun in his hand," <laughs> which happens multiple times per scene in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that just says something about how he felt a story should go, which is just keep having things happen. Yeah, and then eventually yeah. you reach your word count and you're done. Yeah, he strikes me as being not a plotter. He strikes me as being somebody who just kind of starts writing and keeps throwing things in. And that's why the plots seem to get really out of hand is because he's just going with it and throwing more stuff in. And, you know, it'll make sense later and maybe it won't. (laughs) Just keep on going. And again, I don't want it to seem like I'm poo-pooing this movie. I do enjoy it. Um, I love the scene. I I love the fact that he keeps coming on to into rooms and 
knowing that Lauren Bacall is there, you you can step out too. They he says in Joe Brody's apartment, and she's behind the curtain, and mm-hmm. and that's great. And it's just I wish that they had invested a little bit more into the baddies because that would have yeah. made it. That would have made me much more able to go with the flow and just uh, 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 not pay attention to the plot. But when 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 it's just interchangeable bad man after interchangeable bad man, you go, wait, now who is this again? So now I've got to go back and think about the plot. And, and that that's where it falls apart for me. Have you seen the Robert Mitchum one? I haven't. Well, if you watch that and it's not good, <laughs> the, the Robert Mitchum, uh, what's the other one? Farewell, My Lovely, which mm-hmm. came out first. That's good. Uh, the other one, they, it's set in England. There's no re- reason for it. It's really that's really stupid. But Oliver Reed uh, is uh, is Eddie Mars, and Oliver Reed is distinguishable from yes. every other baddie. <laughs> you, you know, you are you are looking at Eddie Mars when Oliver Reed comes in. That's that's the one distinguishing part of that of that movie. Right, because here it's just there's a lot of you know waspish pretty boys yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah there's also a lot of pretty young ladies all over this town they're oh, driving man. cabs they're being cigarette girls. Cab driver and they're, they're all t- totally yes. into humphrey bogart i was expecting dorothy <laughs> yes. malone to show up as the cab driver but <laughs> 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 well, i also drive cabs too uh, the movie thinks humphrey bogart is sexier than i think he is because <laughs> everybody's given him their number well he's got charisma oh, i guess didn't say he doesn't have charisma. Yeah. Charisma goes a long way. But the lady at the bookstore, like th- that's a great oh, moment yeah. where he breaks out the he breaks out the booze and they they drink and then he leaves and and it's that moment of like, well, see you around and you, and she basically goes, <sighs> like <laughs> like if Humphrey Bogart walks into my store, I'm shutting down for the <laughs> for day. The day. Yeah. <laughs> Turn the little sign around. Yep. Pull and down she, the and shade. And she does the, the letting down of the hair, the taking off the glasses, the whole, why, Miss Sakamoto, you're beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> that whole moment. Wow. <laughs> Unexpected reference. Anything mm-hmm. more about the big sleep before we move on to the long goodbye? I want to put in a good word, word for Agnes. Oh, yes. She is, she is excellent in this movie. She's very attractive and she is mean as hell, of course. Yes. And I, I so love her. This is and Geiger's he, assistant in the bookshop. Who she she's the she's the best baddie in the picture. Mm-hmm. Besides, she, yeah, she is. Well, she and she's the most successful too. There's <laughs> the one scene with amazing body language where Joe Brody is talking and Bogart is slowly walking around him and Brody is turning away and in the background she's just leaning forward watching everything. That's a fun scene to watch, which is. Most of the scenes in this movie are fun to listen to, but the scene where Elisha Cook gets shot and that scene, I think, are better looked at than listened to. Yeah, the, I, that was the scene I was thinking of, too, when I was thinking about how she, how good she was, because she's not doing much of anything. You know, she makes some complaints about how her, hard her life has been um, and how men betray her. But <laughs> she's in the background of that of that scene and you just and you look at her. Because she is reacting to the scene and and not really doing much. She's not upstaging anybody, but she's interesting. So you, you got you've got interest from the front of the scene all the way to the back of the scene. In that movie or in that in that scene. Dear listener, this is usually the time where I tell you that we have a sponsor this week. We don't have a sponsor this week, so instead, I want to talk to you about the incomparable. And suggest that you become a member if you aren't already. Membership plans start at $5 a month. You can also buy annually. Go to theincomparable.com slash members to find out more. When you become a member, you can check the boxes 
in the membership form and choose which podcasts on the network to support. You can support this one, of course, but if there are other incomparable podcasts that you listen to, Total Party Kill, Random Trek, whatever you want, you check those boxes and we'll split your donation across all of those different shows. Also, while we're here, I want to mention a bunch of new shows on The Incomparable that you might not know about, because we are a whole network. There are lots of Incomparable podcasts beyond this one. Agents of Smooch recently launched. That is a romance podcast, mostly romantic TV and movies, but there's other stuff there. Chick Flick Fix is a brand new podcast where AJ and Julia try to diagnose what's wrong with uh, chick flicks and fix them. Magnum Podcast is me and Philip Michaels and David J. Lore talking about Magnum P.I. because we're locked inside with nothing to do but watch Magnum P.I. And Monty and Rias versus the movies. Monty Ashley and Rias Hall talk about post-apocalyptic movies, at least for this year, and then they'll change the subject next year, and it's a lot of fun. So please check out those podcasts, and if you do want to become a member, not only will you support your favorite incomparable podcast, but you get a lot of benefits. There's an amazing Slack group that you can join. There are the Bootleg Podcasts, which get you live recordings of uh, episodes of the main show and some other shows, too, and uh, Total Party Kill fans especially. You will love it because... We are playing so much D&D during lockdown, and it's all going in the feeds for members now, and will eventually reach everybody else when uh, the time is right. So thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you for supporting The Incomparable if you're already a member. And now back to the episode. All right. Should we move on to the yes, 70s? Sure. To, the, yes. to the filthy, smelly 1970s? Move to the 70s. All right. Robert Altman... Mm-hmm. And uh, Elliot Gould <laughs> stars as uh, a different Philip Marlowe. And the, the one thing that I wanted to mention up front about this is, if you haven't watched this movie yet, just watch and see if you can f- spot any shot where Elliot Gould isn't smoking. And the answer is, <laughs> oh. I think there is one. There is one shot where he's in the car and he's eating <laughs> and otherwise and then immediately cuts away and then he's smoking again but i i would i as a counterpoint he's the only one in the movie i think that smokes it, it, he is which is fascinating too it's it's you know that that's look this movie is so weird because it, it is very much <laughs> intended by altman as this um kind of satire of of 70s culture but also of detective movies and the you know the Brackett screenplay Lee Brackett screenplay for this they t- she took out a bunch of stuff from the plot and uh and 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 Altman was convinced he wanted to have Marlowe be like a man out of time like he's an old it's funny now because I don't feel this way now but apparently in the early 70s the you know hard-bitten Chandler-esque private detective was a was a, a cliche Right. And so the only way you could make a movie like this was but kind of like puncturing it by making him this sad sack kind of out of time, uh, um, you know, Rip Van Marlowe is what working premise. Right. Well, there was actually almost a subgenre of movies in the 1970s where where it was the the uh, scruffy L.A. detective, because there's a really good movie called The, the Late Show with Art Carney, where he is mm. basically um an old detective forced to deal with 1970s LA and uh, there's elements of a uh, family plot where Bruce Dern is, is kind of a, a, a shaggy detective character, but there, there was very much this, this, uh, this sub genre of just um, 
losers running around L.A. trying to solve crimes mm-hmm. and not really uh, uh, fitting in with the, the, the life and times of the era. Like the Rockford Files, a, yeah. year, a year after this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, it, it's fascinating. Too. So Robert Altman, right? So there's first there's that great director, Robert Altman. <laughs> the Marmite director, I think. You know, the mumbling one. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I Okay, did I enjoy <laughs> The Long Goodbye? I'm not sure... <laughs> Why bring up the question? What do you want us to do about it? And the podcast ends that way. Right? He's well, not this sure. is the thing, though, that I think is interesting is like, I kind of thought it was brilliant and also kind of thought it was boring. And I feel like that happens a lot with Robert Altman movies when I watch them. It's like, I, I really appreciated this movie more than I liked it. I guess I'll put it that way. I think okay. I think there are things about it that are like that opening scene where he where he's feeding his cat and he's going to the store to get cat food and he's talking to the ladies as he leaves who are in their bikinis or whatever and they say get me some brownie mix so that they can. Oh, there are no bikinis there. Friend. Are there no bikinis? I don't <laughs> no. even know. They're just naked. There are a couple. There are some bikinis. Yeah. Anyway, it's the yeah. it's the ladies and they 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 need some brownies and it's very clear it's because they want to make hash brownies. So um, they. He, he goes to the store and he can't find the cat food and he gets the brownie mix and we have a whole conversation with the guy at the store and then he goes back and this is before the credits, mind you, right? And then he feeds the cat and the cat still doesn't want the food because he couldn't get the right brand. And like that, that is infuriating and yet also <laughs> brilliant. It is a brilliant scene. It is well acted. It is well written. Um, it's got some very trademark Altman stuff in it in terms of dialogue. Al- dialogue and Altman is a very weird combination. And here, the thing that you notice is he's talking to the girls who are his neighbors, but he's kind of like just not talking to them. He's kind of just mumbling to himself at a volume that they couldn't hear him. But mm-hmm. that's just I what he like does. I feel like he's doing that through most of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that that is kind of an Altman thing where the way Altman treats dialogue very strangely, there's a lot of overlapping dialogue. There's dialogue that you that, that is at weird volumes and all of that. But I, I feel like that one scene with the cat food kind of encapsulates my feelings about this movie as a whole, which is, I think it's brilliant. I I want to talk about it. I think the people in it did an amazing job. And I also sat there the whole time watching it thinking this is kind of a spectacular choice because we haven't even rolled the credits and I don't know what I'm watching. here. (laughs) So like, I I appreciate it while also kind of being aghast at what I'm watching. uh, If that explains it. And that's kind of this movie to me in general, but it's brilliant, but also like questionable. (laughs) I think when, when the movie got its hooks in me, and I'm sure we'll mention this song many times, but there's oh, there's God. a song that plays by um, a little known composer, John Williams. Whatever happened to that guy, John Williams? Anyway, so he writes this song, and um, it's and, and it's playing, and then Marlowe gets out of his car and goes into the shopping mar- m- market to get the cat food, and it's playing as the music. And I said, "Oh my God, I must continue. I, I will follow this movie to the gates of hell." <laughs> I mean, it's it's amazing because you start to think you're going crazy. And then the moment where he goes to Mexico and there's the mariachi version of it is playing there. It's like, this is in a world where there's only one song. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. That's the crazy thing you take away from his uh, first trip to Mexico. Because well, there's, there's something else that kind of stuck in my mind. Jason. <laughs> Actually, I think the music is number one. And then we okay. go to number two. So shall I give the uh, 500 yard view of the plot in this movie such as it is? It sure. Makes- 
Yeah, I mean, I next to the 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 the, the big sleep. Well, this let, this looks like a child story. Let me do my version first, which is okay. Philip Marlowe pulls on a thread and keeps pulling, and a whole bunch of people die, and there's a whole bunch of different things happening. It's in in on one level, it's exactly the same plot as the big mm-hmm. sleep. Yeah, only fewer people die in this movie. Yeah, it's true. I think. So anyhow, you've got Marlowe, you've got his friend Terry Lennox, who's having trouble with the wife. Terry Lennox asks him to ask him to drive him down to Mexico. Oops, it turns out that Terry Lennox's wife is dead and Terry Lennox is the suspect and Marlowe is an accessory after the fact and he's going to sit in jail. But then he's released because Terry Lennox is dead. Uh, Terry Lennox's good friends, the Wades, call him up because uh, Roger Wade, a Hemingway-esque author, has disappeared. And uh, Mrs. Wade, who seems to have a thing from Marlowe, uh, wants him found. So he finds him. Roger Wade uh, is a crazy man and <laughs> runs into the sea, commits suicide. Uh, Mrs. Wade says, oh, well. The- Very clearly a, an author. uh author character in the in the novel right this is this is the messed up writer who thinks he can't write anymore and has writer's block and is Mm -hmm. drinking too much and is suicidal and it's very clearly uh the raymond chandler (laughs) character has a bunch of pals with weird mustaches you know the type (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know and and played by sterling hayden the star of asphalt jungle so that's like a callback to noir but hayden was the uh, protagonist of asphalt jungle not the crazy gone to seed insane writer guy of this movie he's dead uh at that point it's well marlo you've done your job but marlo throughout this whole thing has not really believed that terry lennox is dead or that terry lennox killed his wife um but at this point he's beginning to put two and two together and realizes that it was terry lennox after all who killed his wife and terry lennox is still alive living living down in Mexico where he's going to meet Mrs. Wade because they're secretly together and then uh, Marlo goes down to Mexico and shoots Terry Lennox dead. The end. Terry Lennox played by <sighs> pitcher Jim Bouton, author of yeah, Ball well, Four. That, that, yeah, I, I think I like this movie probably certainly better than Jason. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess I like it better than a lot of people on this panel uh, because I really love this movie. My one complaint about the movie is that Jim Bouton was a terrible casting decision because I think for the final scene to have impact where um, Marlowe kills Terry Lennox, um, you really need to get the sense that they have a bond, that there has been a betrayal, that there has that Marlowe is uh, decides to kill him uh, for for reasons other than just you really inconvenienced me. <laughs> um, and I don't think Jim Bouton, as much as I enjoy Ball Four, one of my favorite baseball books ever, doesn't really have. He's a hell of a baseball book writer as an actor. Yeah. Fair. That's fair. Although I think he yeah. quits. Him, I think he quits himself okay in that first oh, yeah, scene. Yeah, yeah, but when he comes back the at the f- end, it's like, mm, yeah, yeah. The, they the kept end, him the, off screen as long as they could. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you just you just imagine what a better or even professional actor would have done with that part. <laughs> but again, with the, with the Chandler esque aspect of this, like it is the kind of seamy underbelly. It's L.A. in the seventies, but there's oh, absolutely. There's all these, you know, it's it's just kind of like so many so many of the best actually seventies movies. It's gross, and you're glad that they can't can do convey smell in a movie because it would <laughs> smell really bad. And like it's it's just that that is that is what seventies movies are. And and to see this the scat scaffolding of a of a noir detective story from the 40s and then have it be like like this and it it is i don't know i i mean again phil i i appreciate this movie i just it also i also find it kind of maddening it's a little bit of both. oh yeah no that's that's fair 
Um, and we and you mentioned the 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 stink and the underbelly, and we didn't even mention in the um, ninety second plot summary Jerry Augustine, that the horrible mobster who Terry Lennox stole money from, and is played by uh, Mark Rydell. I was going to say Elliot Gould um, is going. You know, everybody wants to know where the money is, and and for a while he doesn't have the money, and then later he gets the money, but he keeps professing that he doesn't have the money, and mm-hmm. and that's that's the other part of this is there's like a five thousand dollar bill and all of that stuff going on uh and he doesn't take no for an answer and he doesn't believe it and he is super we, we haven't mentioned the police like okay so let's back up for a second uh it's very hard to look at the beginning of this movie through the lens of having lived through oj simpson without right. wondering if oj simpson and al cowlings remembered the plot of this movie and thought that might be a good solution is to flee to mexico because it's a very similar thing it's like oh my friend has shown up with scratch marks on his face and at 2 a.m and demands to be taken to the mexican border immediately Okay, I'll just do that without Seems questioning legit. it. <laughs> See, I liked how thin and feckless Jim Bhutan's performance is. Because at the end of the movie, you just kind of get a sense of, all oh, this was because of this, this dope. guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a perfect crime. Except, uh, you know, well, I mean, you could argue it is the cr- perfect fr- crime, except that his he had the mistake of having uh, Marlowe as his friend. And that was that was his that was his great mistake. You know, there are a lot of great things in this movie. The the I like him getting thrown in, in jail and the, there's a guy ranting crazy things above him in the jail and that, that he gets pulled out of. I think that that's kind of great. And then he... It's David Carradine. Is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. It's David Carradine. You're right. Is what Socrates, whatever. whatever yeah. And then he finds out that his friend is dead, except he doesn't believe it when he gets out there. Like, why are you letting me out? And uh, and there's the you know shuttling to Malibu Colony. There's the guy. There's the guy who does the, the impressions. Security guard who does impressions. <laughs> oh boy, terrible <laughs> impressions too. <laughs> I love that guy. Yep. And there's a moment when uh, we're being followed that uh, Marlowe is being followed by another amiable thug named Harry, just like he was in the last movie. I think that's fun. He's being followed by one of Jerry Augustine's yeah. thugs. Yes. Yeah. And. He pulls up to the security guard, and he has the chance to say, hey, keep this guy from following me. And instead, he just slows that guy down with a bad Walter Brennan impression. He loves Walter (laughs) Brennan. Do your Walter Brennan. So he plays a very low-stakes prank on the guy. I love that. That choice that... This movie is... Like like Jason, I'm not sure I like (laughs) this movie. I think I do. But it's intensely interesting. Yes, which in some ways is really all all you need. Um, but there are there are a few scenes in here that that really stand out. So <laughs> Sterling Hayden's um, when when we first meet Sterling Hayden in the sanitarium or whatever when he's uh, talking to Henry Gibson, I'm I'm thinking, oh, this is not going to be good. This he's he's overdoing this, and this this is not going to turn out well. But as the movie goes on, I I see the choices Sterling Hayden's making, whether he's making them consciously or he's just stoned out of his mind. And he, mm-hmm. That's what he's right. doing. I don't know. Yeah. But that doesn't make any difference. It works. Altman gets the performance out of him. And the party scene is, is really, really good. Um, and the power that Henry Gibson has over Sterling Hayden is yeah. is one of the fascinating things about this movie, and we don't really know why, but he has it, and you see it 
you see it in two, you see it in that scene in the sanitarium or whatever, the hotel or whatever, the Burbank Arms or whatever they call it. And, the, and then the scene at the party where Henry Gibson, who is like four foot nine, slaps Sterling Hayden in the face and gets away with it. I definitely got a 70s kind of cult ish vibe from that right he holds some sort of power yeah, over him absolutely. yeah that private yeah. hospital has something else going on yeah than what we yeah. saw yeah exactly yeah. it's 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 wrapped up in a larger kind of co- you know community in quotes that's it's a cult uh, but yeah there's something creepy going on there and sending anything in southern california in the 70s i immediately start to think is a cult involved so it yeah, it's some Esalen or something yeah. like that. Yeah, that, that's what it has to be. Because it, we spend a lot of time there at the Bur- Burbank. What the hell is it called? The Burbank? Uh, it's a place anyway, with a really nice kind of interior of the building where they've got the like the, the, the lily pads and the fountains and the. Yeah, but we've got people, you know, one guy hoisting one of the patients along by the by his the back of his belt and another woman is walking along pacing off steps and things. There's just a lot no reason for any of that except to provide atmosphere for us and to say, "Well, that's interesting. Look it, at that." It, it seems like a hospital that treats uh, very rich people who uh, yes. are easily yes. tricked out of their money. <laughs> That's a good business model. And maybe a spouse sent them there to get them out of their hair, which mm-hmm. seems, yeah. which is kind of what I thought was going on at that moment in the movie, it seemed apparent. Right. And it's very clear, like, the context we get with for the doctor is not a medical context. The immediate context we get for him is uh, a financial context, which is like he wants oh, yeah. he wants his money, um, which, which again, sets you off of, like, is this is a place where they're much more concerned about getting money from these people than taking care of them. It's interesting. It's it the whole thing, including the that scene and then the party scene and all. I, I mean, it it felt long to me and it felt talky in the Altman way, and it made my mind wander. It was interesting to watch, but I did feel conscious about what what does this have to do with anything? Is it are we actually going to move forward in the plot? Plot, silly. I know I shouldn't be caring about things like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Although I did enjoy watching Sterling Hayden for some of the same same reasons Doctor Drang mentioned because he's doing this sort of out of control thing at the same time as being completely under Gibson's control. And that's a pretty mean feat for an actor. I mean, Sterling Hayden is, besides just being big and loud, he's also being, you know, controlled and manipulated by this this guy, which is, it's it's super interesting. And like I say, I, I can't help it as a noir fan to sort of think back on uh, his performance in Asphalt Jumble Girl specifically, but in other film noirs. I feel like that's one of two or three instances in the movie where Altman is sort of giving a, a nod mm. back to the genre. He's parroting, not parroting, but I don't know. He's he's referencing. Every time someone says, why was this in the movie? I keep going to this one shot in the Mexico trip, and I would like to bring it up yes, now. Yeah. Please. Okay, sure, go ahead. <laughs> what about them dogs having sex? <laughs> that went on for a while, huh? The way they just yeah. had a shot of dogs having sex in a Mexican street? It does tend to linger, doesn't it? It didn't go on as long as the horse sex scene in The Big Sleep, but it, w- it was a little more explicit. <laughs> that was different. <laughs> we, do have, we do have an excellent bad guy. Oh, in yeah. this movie, uh, Marty Augustine. Yes, he, I, Marty I think I Augustine him Jerry is really earlier good. Because I don't know what I'm talking yeah. about. Um, yeah, Marty. Let's, uh, let's, uh, Marty let's all Augustine. take off our shirts now. That'll be <laughs> okay. That scene where he's being intimidating but also crazy, and somehow talks himself around into the best way to intimidate this detective who I haven't even asked a question yet. I'm still just in the setup for my interrogation phases. We're all going to get naked. <laughs> and no. the two things I love are, one, 
one of his minions, Pepe, says, boss, I got all these scars. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> and Pepe gets to leave. Boss yeah, is like, so yeah, Pepe. You just go Pepe in the other room. Right, we understand you're not comfortable with this. The other thing is, that's when you notice... That's Arnold Schwarzenegger. Clearly Arnold Schwarzenegger standing there practically naked. In his gold lame underpants, I believe. <laughs> and and then Marty Augustine also does the uh you know, hits his girlfriend with the Coke bottle. The flat, oh, man. flat Coke that bottle. Was- uncomfortable oh, man. Yes, that, that, it reminds that, you how little women matter in this movie yeah, yeah, that I mean, just came out of nowhere I, I think, mm-hmm. you know i mean but the stories go that this was actually added by altman and he wanted he wanted to have um, you know moments of shocking violence amid the kind of ludicrous uh <laughs> plot following that marlo is doing but it, it is a shocking moment it, it, it and, is out of nowhere and his rationale yeah. is basically like I like I her. Lo- yes. I don't like I love you. Her. I don't like you yeah. at all. Like, compare that to all the people who get bloodlessly knocked out in the big sleep. And mm-hmm. oof. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, as as villains go, yeah. And yeah. they keep her around. They bring her back. Yeah, well, first they keep her around because, okay, we've got to go visit the Wade. So you're going to wait in the car with your bleeding face yeah. and wander around. And maybe the henchman will remember to not have you wander out into traffic. Um, but uh, then they bring her back later with the scars and the 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 the, the um, bandages and right. the, and the, the the braces that are on her to just show the aftermath of that. Yeah, definitely more of a uh, a prominent villain. I guess mm-hmm. we could say. I don't think Arnold Schwarzenegger, because he's at full bodybuilder mode at this stage. Well, yes, he's yeah. just ingesting steroids yes. that, like like candy. I don't think he can do any good goon work. He's too <laughs> muscly to actually <laughs> muscle somebody. No, he, he's there. He's there for the we're going to take off our shirts part. That's why he's there. Yeah. That's why he has that move. Yeah. It's it's the visual. Clearly, Robert Altman said, go down to Venice Beach and get me the biggest ape at the circus. Yeah. And they brought back Arnold Schwarzenegger and he said, perfect, don't speak. And And he gets to say, I was in a Robert Altman movie for a while. Only more more directors had followed that. (laughs) So the the end of this movie is fascinating because we've been watching Elliot Gould as the... Also, by the way, I view always viewed Elliot Gould as a kind of... uh, uh, like comedy actor, light yeah. comedy actor, and and so this is this is fascinating to watch him here because it's it's a different kind of kind of part. But the at the end, it is a surprise moment where he just lifts his gun and shoots his friend, who's motivated the entire plot here, um, and then he walks away. And you know, look, there are levels in this whole story. Clearly, Robert Altman is playing with satirizing the culture and satirizing the genre. And and there are lots of levels playing. And on one level, I look at that and I think, you know, he's shooting his friend because his friend has betrayed him and caused all this trouble and killed his wife. And he, Marlo's not going to deal with it anymore. On another level, I look at that and I go, oh, Elliot Gould's tired of this movie, too. <laughs> I mean, and I like I, I like this movie, but the, 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 on one level, he's like, no, no, this is over. It's over. I'm ending the movie now by shooting you. So basically, you. you were expecting Elliot Gould to like shoot uh, Jim Bouton and turn to the camera and go, "That's it. That's the movie." That wraps it up. <laughs> Instead of playing Hooray for Hollywood at the end, which is the same thing. Well, yeah. the, the, it is also beautiful that as he's with his little harmonica, he's walking back to town. Um, after killing his buddy, that um, that uh, Eileen is coming the other way to go mm-hmm. meet him. 
that 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 is a great kind of moment of you people have been very bad, and yeah. uh, now you're gonna you're not gonna like what you find when you go to the hammock and the little little uh, tide pool or little uh, you know grotto that he's got set up because he's dead because I shot him. Yeah, yeah. That that looked like a callback to the end of the third man. Yeah, very much so, actually. And yet I can't thematically it doesn't make sense but visually it that's what it, that's what I was thinking as it's as you see her car driving up and he's walking in the opposite direction you know movies that play the same song over and over again well, yeah. <laughs> The, the Coen brothers use that in Miller's Crossing as Who's well. Supposed to be Who's supposed dead, to be isn't. dead, but actually isn't, yeah. and it's because they're yeah. very bad. <laughs> I mean, like, mm -hmm. But I enjoy the zither. I don't... <laughs> well, we're all in a dither for that zither, I think. Mm -hmm. Did you guys notice the way he locks his door? There's a padlock on the outside. He does a weird thing with the, with the door of his car, though, too. There's When he first pulls into the Malibu Club... And the tennis ladies are walking by and he locks his door. There's some weird thing that he does that I didn't understand, which goes nowhere. There's a lot of things in this movie that I don't understand. That's the essence of an Altman movie for me is somebody doing a weird thing that they don't explain. That's what I love about Popeye. <laughs> why, why are you doing a blackface routine after you've been fingerprinted? That's yeah. that was weird. A, you know, that. Uh, yeah, that's not my you favorite know, part when, of the movie. When he started, when he started out. Just putting like he was putting burnt cork under his. Yeah, like oh, coach says oh, we're gonna play. And, yeah, that was fine. Yeah. And then uh, no, yeah, don't then it don't gets uncomfortable. No, don't for do that. It's, ni it's, it's 1973. You should know better. Yeah, yeah, you really should. You really should. This observation will mean nothing to anybody three years younger than me. But this movie was the debut of Morris the Cat. That's oh, true. Yes. Is that who that cat yeah. is? That's true. That yeah. charismatic yeah. orange yes. cat. Did you see how finicky yes. he was, Jason? Oh, <laughs> oh, hey. So, so you've given me the opening to talk about the cat. I was like, how am I going to get the cat, work the cat in? Because I have things to all say right, about go. the cat. All right, go. Let's hear about it. So first of all, I did enjoy that whole scene, long as it was, because it was him and the cat, because I thought Elliot Gould, Gould was actually quite charming in the scene. But my first thought, knowing that this had noir pedigree, was this gun for hire in which Alan Ladd and his cat are best buds and the cat is the only thing or person that Alan Ladd loves until he meets Veronica Lake, but he really likes the mm. cat better. And I think Elliot Gould spends a lot more time with this cat than even Alan Ladd spent with the cat in this gun for hire. Now, I remembered about this gun for hire on my own, but I wanted to see if there were any other noir cats. That was the name of my band in the, the 90s. By the <laughs> exactly. Way, I was trying to work on something like that and I didn't get there. So so I, I did a little Googling and I found the delightful site Cats on Film. <laughs> of course. <laughs> where, cats where this on movie, Film. That was one of the noir cats' <laughs> biggest <laughs> hits. Cats on Film. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> where <laughs> this movie is also featured, as well as Alan Ladd and his cat, whose name I do not know. I believe the cat was aggressively not named in this gun for hire. I think it was just called Cat, and Alan Ladd would say Cat a lot. Uh, but whether it was a direct connection or not, I choose to believe it was because I was somewhat skeptical of, of the movie to begin with. And I was like, well, Elliot Gould has a cat. I guess it'll be okay until the cat either gets killed or lost or, or that becomes or a plot it point. it off in the first, <laughs> yes, right. first act of the movie and never returns. Well, hey, you know the classic rule, <laughs> fail to save the cat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, when we see Elliot Gould and the cat, it is trying to sort of say, look, this person at least has one thing in the in the world that he cares about, at least a little bit. Um, and it's the it's this cat. 
Um, but the payoff at the end, too, because we see him look for the cat here and there and ask about where the cat is. And then that's the last thing he says to to uh, to his well, buddy, Jim, Jim, to Terry. Jim Bowden right. says, oh, you're a loser, Marlo. Yeah, I even lost my I cat. I lost my cat and then he shoots him. I mean, it's not. Right. It's like, yeah, like he's lost his two and best friends, fault. Terry bang, bang. and the cat. I have a sliding doors question because mm. I don't know if you noticed the dedication at the end of the movie. It's dedicated to Dan Blocker. Dan Blocker, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, really? And the Hoss. He was going to play uh, the Roger Wade character instead of Sterling Hayden, father of Interesting. Hitchcock on Brooklyn Nine Nine. Nine Nine. Yeah. Yeah. And then he died, and uh, so they had to they recast it, obviously, because otherwise it would have been awkward. Uh, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Are you proposing suicide if you're not yet if you're already dead? Yeah. Are you proposing that there's nobody playing it, or are you proposing that they bring out his dead body? Yeah. Well, I'm wondering what. Obviously, the only thing I really know Dan Blocker from is Bonanza, but uh, it's kind of a different movie with him instead of uh, Sterling Hayden, isn't it? Yes. It's hard to imagine Dan Blocker being as crazy as Sterling Hayden yeah, yeah, that's, was yeah. in this. He's just big and stoic is the way I yeah. would think mm-hmm. Dan Blocker yeah. would be. Kind and, of you, and you don't get the, the, the callback to 50s noir that, that Shelley was mentioning. I think I, I think he would have been more kind of a haunted person who you could see as competent but messed up. Whereas Sterling Hayden, I, honestly, I think the challenge with Sterling Hayden is believing that he ever has it together. Yeah. Like he's the other way where he just seems like a disaster and you have to sort of put your faith in the idea that he can hold it together and he was once more capable and now he's fallen apart. And I would imagine that with Blocker, it would have been the reverse, that he would have had to make an effort to seem messed up because he would have seemed, but you would have bought that he was a great writer who was capable, but now he's on the wrong track and he's fallen apart. See, I'm more interested by the revelation that Robert Altman directed a few early Bonanza episodes, which is where he knew Dan Blocker <laughs> from. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, the dialogue in those episodes was very confusing and hard to follow. Oh, it's a lot of mumbling. <laughs> yeah, right. Mumble corpse. Yeah, like little, jo- little Joe and Haas are all talking over each other, and <laughs> Lauren Green is just standing there going, what, huh? What? And the camera would just pan to someone in the corner, like, w- w- watching the conversation going yeah. on. It was weird. Well, that's our Robert Altman riff. I hope yeah. everybody enjoyed it. Yeah. What What else have we not mentioned that we should uh, say about The Long Goodbye? I have a couple of things. One, a, a, about about the song. Uh, the first person who sings it is Jack Shelton, who yes. is Conjunction Junction. I'm just and a bill. I'm, I'm only a bill. I'm just a bill on, ca- on, Capitol, on Capitol Hill. Hill. And you hear, you hear that voice and you say, oh, For my sure. God, that's, that's him. So that's very 70s. And uh, so, the, and then, then a woman is singing it. And then when he, when uh, uh, Elliot Gould is sprung from uh, stir, as they called it, uh, and goes and goes to the bar to pick up his messages, it's Mr. Carlin from the Bob Newhart show. Yes, Jack Riley. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Jack playing, Riley. It, playing it at the bar, and you think he's just cleverly tinkling the song, and you're like, "Oh, movie, you did it again with that." And then he begins to sing it, and he, you're like, "Oh, he begins no. to sing it." Mr. <gasps> Mr. Carlin is singing a song in a bar. <laughs> oh, see, that's that's the moment where I really loved it. I, I mean, I, I love that that it's just this. This is a world with one song, 
Yes. And it just yes. keeps going and it becomes more absurd as it goes. And I love it. If the use of just one song over and over again in this movie didn't drive you to madness, um, I would suggest checking out my other favorite Robert Altman movie, which is um, Thieves Like Us, which also makes use of uh, diagenic sound in a very um, mm. uh, compelling way. Uh, with uh, just all of the uh, uh, music and um, a lot of dialogue comes over the radio as there as the movie progresses. I read some article that suggested that um, it was Robert Altman's idea to have just the single song. And uh, the, the article that I read speculated about why. Uh, and then finally said, but it's generally thought that Robert Altman just thought it would be funny. Yeah. <laughs> and he was he's right. totally right. I can respect yes. that. He's hilarious. I mean, that's, it's, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's far more interesting than he didn't have the budget, which I don't, which of course is not true, or no. he was dumb. I mean, th- that he thought it was funny they had to is record a like acceptable 10 reason. There's different versions of it. It's just amazing. It just keeps happening. It is. Was there a soundtrack album? You do wonder if John Williams got a, a small check, smaller check than normal, because he didn't have to do as much. Or maybe he had to, he, it was more because he had to be more creative. <laughs> I don't know. In making the same song well, I don't sound know whether he arranged them all. I maybe. Yeah, I guess he did. That would have been a Probably. thing that John Williams did. I looked on, on Apple Music anyway, and the only version of it that I could find is the Dave Grusin, Grusin Trio jazz version. Um, but uh, it's out there. If you want to listen, you can sing along yourself. I found the soundtrack album. The first eight tracks are indeed all the long goodbye, <laughs> tango, mariachi. Reprise. <laughs> Lyrics are by Johnny Mercer. Oh, hey. Yes. Really? Yes. There's yeah. also mm-hmm. later on something called Love Theme from The Long Goodbye. Yeah. And I don't even know what scene that would the be long in. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, probably so. <laughs> the Long Goodbye, sitar. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that, that's so playing as close the, to the girls are now. doing their doing their uh, um, exercises in bikinis and otherwise. And otherwise, yeah. we didn't talk about otherwise. those girls at all because again, women don't really matter in this yeah, movie. Yeah. They do because you have to have somebody to ogle. I, I guess Which so. Even, yeah. Well, Harry, there's, I, like there's Eileen Wade, right? Who is the, yeah. the, the but she's she, a plot. She comes as closest. Yeah, yeah, she has some plot consequences. I liked the various minions reaction to the ladies who if people have not seen the movie right outside marlo's window are some women who are spend all their time doing topless yoga yes. and being very high oh uh, yeah absolutely. And absolutely and the minions reaction is what is going on over they're, there they're, they're literally they they are the wolves in the uh, old warner brothers cartoons with the <laughs> the, the eyes popping out and the jaws dropping and the aruga, aruga it's their bafflement like, i like like they don't understand no. they know that doesn't make any sense i, I feel like this is this is part of altman's sort of like la in the 70s satire that he's yeah. doing here too yeah. which yeah. is yeah. Very which much is so. that oh, those yeah. guys are our are sort of our proxy which is just like what why yeah. What? <laughs> they have a help, they have a candle shop. Yeah, I remember when people just had jobs. Yeah, oh yeah, they're dipping they're dipping those candles all the time. That's what they're well, doing. One of Augustine's minions has binoculars. Yeah. And I, I and I think he'd never been to the place yeah. before. He's, he'd also but nev- somehow he, he's also never used binoculars because it's like he's trying to like tune them in or something. They keep going out of focus. Like, dude, that's not how binoculars work, but you know, he's it's very an excited movie. You have to enjoy the little riffs and irrelevant stuff. I think you're right. Popeye is all irrelevant stuff, and that's why I love it. <laughs> I loved seeing Warren Berlinger because if you grew up in the 70s and ever watched Love American Style or almost anything that was on TV, Warren Berlinger was in it. Warren Berlinger is the guy who drives 
uh, uh, Marlowe away from prison after Marlowe is sprung uh-huh. and shows up, gives him some newspapers to look at, talks to him a little bit, tell him, tells him about Terry Lennox being dead and never shows up again because <laughs> he was there apparently for a day and Altman wanted Warren Berlinger. And he's this kind of funny, chubby guy who is was part of my growing up. So I, I enjoyed seeing him. Anything else? I do think, surprisingly, Nina Van Pallant did a good job in this movie. Why do you say surprisingly? I, well, because I don't know anything about her. No, I don't either. And she, and she's just uh, uh, seemingly this pretty girl who married well um, and was like a folk singer or something in, in Europe. In Denmark, yeah. Uh, and uh, she she does Eileen Wade really well. She's uh, great looking, which comes natural. You don't she doesn't have to try for that. Um but I think she acts well. She's she's sort of on this. She's on the edge of flirting with Marlowe, but not really, and always keeps her distance a little bit. But is keeping him. And he doesn't really flirt that much with her, but kind of does. And it's it's an interesting relationship between the two the two of them. And you expect Elliot Gould to be able to handle that. But I didn't expect someone who really is who. What else has she done? Not much. I, I didn't expect her to be able to do it, and I thought she did a really creditable job. I also thought it was nice that they did not try to cast that part as a much younger woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she was about forty years old when this was shot, and she looks she looks like a great looking forty year old woman. You got to get the sense that they that there's mileage there in that relationship, right? That she's been with him for a while, yes. and that this is not she's not like the the new she's wife. She's not the second wife. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah that's she, that's she right. She certainly brings more heft to her role than Jim Bouton brings to his. <laughs> well, that's not difficult. No. <laughs> yeah. What does she see in him? I think that couple is fascinating. That's a good question. And I think I think that the the performances are really interesting. I think she does give a really good performance. I I appreciate her a lot and I kind of got the sense of or at least what I thought was the sense of what the character is, although it turns out that that's not what's going on because of uh Jim But that's Batman. okay. I don't I don't mind that I don't think it was anything to do with her acting that made you feel that way. I mean, that's the nature of yes. the way the character yeah, no, was written and that's fine. I think really she well. performed that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think being exasperated with her husband and the situation. I mean, you know, whatever she may or may not have seen in Jim Bowden, clearly her her relationship with her husband wasn't going anywhere because the guy was crazy. So yeah. it may not have been so much that Jim Bowden was awesome, but that anybody but this nut job would be preferable. All right. So I, I think I need to go around and ask people sort of their feelings about these two movies. And uh, now that we've all experienced them, uh, where where do you come down on your enjoyment of these two movies? Dr. Drang, what about you? Let's start with you. Well, I, I enjoyed the hell out of uh, The Big Sleep. I've, I don't, I was a teenager, I think, when I first, uh, when I first saw it and I, and I still love it. And I think in many respects, the sort of image that one has of Bogart is maybe even more strongly associated with this movie than with the Maltese Falcon, although they're very close. And I think the Maltese Falcon's a better movie. But I, I think the wisecracking, always cool, tough guy is stronger in, in this one. It's maybe a little bit easier to parody. As far as The Long Goodbye is concerned, I, 
as I said, it's an intensely interesting movie. I don't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed The Big Sleep or as much as I enjoy many movie, movies. <laughs> I think... I think... Put that on that the poster. The, I think... Yes. I think that... I, you know, like, Rob, Robert, Roger Ebert loved this movie. And I think maybe you had to be there at the time and, and certainly be older than 13 years old, which is what I was when this came out, uh, to, to have appreciated it. I think a lot of the, the mumbling and the, uh, the nasty shots at Los Angeles would have fit in better if you were seeing this in the early to mid 70s. And it, it doesn't age as well, oddly enough, even though it's a much younger movie. Uh, it doesn't age as well as The Big Sleep does. Yeah, the Ebert review is where I read that. He says, "What? What did Alt, Why did Altman only use the one song? I've heard lots of theories, the most convincing of which is it amused him, <laughs> which is, <laughs> yep, yep. Monty, what do you think about these two movies? I enjoy watching them. Like, during them, I am entertained. But for both of them, the whole time I'm thinking, there's a better version of this I could be watching instead. Like, Yes, it's great watching Bogart and Bacall banter at each other. They also do that into Have and Have Not, mm -hmm. and that's more of the movie. Mm. Or I really like watching Elliot Gould mumble funny things while directed by Robert Altman. <laughs> Couldn't go, I watch MASH? Just watch and MASH, yeah, sure. There's more stuff <laughs> like that. So, like, both of these, I think, are fun movies. I do enjoy them. Thank you for the opportunity to watch them again. I don't think they're the best version of what they do best. Interesting. Uh, Shelley, what do you think? I like The Big Sleep partly for what it represents. I, I really love the hell out of a good 40s Warner Brothers movie. It's just the way that studio, and not even to mention Howard Hawks, who's a separate entity, uh, the way that studio made movies, the people they had working there, starting with Bogart, Bacall, in this case, less so the character actors that are playing supporting roles. They usually have much better ones. Uh, but I just, it, it feels good. It feels comfortable. It feels right in my sweet spot. And I have to actively suspend my desire for a plot that I can comprehend. Because I like that about movies. I like plots. They're enjoyable. I, it didn't frustrate me because I've seen it before and I was like, all right, fine. It's a big sleep. It's Don't worry about who, who did what. Just watch Bogey and Bacall. Oh, look, there's a scene they added after the war. Cool. Uh, so it was <laughs> enjoyable. I, I don't, I think I would just as soon watch probably Key Largo if I were going to choose another Bogey and Bacall movie or even Dark mm. Passage. Uh, but still, it was lots of fun. Um, the Long Goodbye, I wanted to try and give it a chance because it frustrated me while I was watching it. I, I like some Altman and don't, I like the idea of Altman. I don't always like his movies, yeah. but I like I like what he tries to do. And some of some of his movies are, are among my favorites, but some are not. So I was predisposed. And, and because I knew that this was a 70s movie that was looking at an era that I am interested in, which is this film noir era of the 40s and 50s, I was predisposed to go, OK, well, how is he going to handle this? He doesn't wallow in nostalgia, which is great. He 
and he understands the time that he is in and he's he's it's very definitely a 70s movie but it's actually got a lot less of the kind of shtick that annoy me about some 70s movies which try a lot harder to show how gritty and dirty and disgusting things are because i feel like this movie has a lighter touch than maybe even our discussion has indicated at least from my point of view um elliot gould's mumblecore just infuriated me because I, it was it was funny because I didn't read any reviews or anything about the movie purposely before I had seen it and I had not seen it before and so I waited until after to read some things and I read all about how Elliot Gould is an anachronism he's a guy in a black suit and a white and a, and a white shirt and nobody else dresses like that and he's the man out of time but it's not like Bogart was dropped into the 70s that's the the reviews make it sound like that's what was going on but Gould is you sir are no Humphrey Bogart yeah. Elliot Gould no, and we, we don't know anything about Bogart's home life <laughs> <laughs> well and what we did or whether he had a cat he had a boat but he, I don't know if he had a cat uh, so so I found it sort of infuriating uh, I I was dragged along, pulled along, I should say, in a, in a positive way by sort of the places we got to go. Again, plot didn't matter in this case, and I was, I guess, less bothered by that than I had been, would have been in the, the big sleep. But I, the places that he would go, even though it didn't always make sense to me why he was going a certain place or doing a certain thing or what was motivating him, I didn't really understand that particularly well based on his performance, but the places he went were interesting. And it, it's kind of like if you're t- being taken on a ride with a friend and you like the friend and you're like, all right, I'll go with you. Oh, oh this, is, this party is very odd. Hmm, I think I'll watch these crazy people. And I felt like that through most of the movie. Uh, I was genuinely surprised at the end when he shoots Terry Lennox uh, and I enjoyed it, I must say, <laughs> because it's because it surprised me. That's why I enjoyed it, because I was like, oh, well, here's something that happened that I didn't see coming. And it was entertaining. So I I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. I appreciate the joy of the many versions of the song. That didn't bother me. That amused me. But uh, I'd, I'd far rather watch Big Sleep again. Yeah. And for me, um, I feel like my attitude toward both of these movies is similar, which is that they are they have some really great scenes in them and you have to appreciate it on a level that is not a level that I usually appreciate a movie, which is the story and having the story follow and make sense. And I feel like you can make, you can make a movie where the story makes sense that has a lot of great stuff in it. It doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes you make a movie and the story makes sense and there's nothing interesting in it. These are the reverse. The story doesn't make sense in either of these. Particularly, it's more in The Long Goodbye, but in both of them, it's twisty and turny, and it's kind of not the point. And the details are what matter, not the, not the, the overall. Um, and so in Big Sleep, I take away from it Bogart and Bacall and some of other Bogart's other interactions in the dialogue. And Long Goodbye, it is some of the very strange decisions that are made. That long scene with the cat food at the beginning, the music playing over and over again, the gross... The dogs. Dogs, sure, Monty's dogs. The, gro- the gross hey, 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 70s hey. who don't take any ownership of those dogs. You own them now. Oh, man. Monty, Monty's Mexican dogs. Monty, make your dogs behave. There are children watching. <laughs> hey, it's just nature, man. It's just what happens. Neither of these movies I have a huge amount of affection for, but yet I appreciate moments, and I'm glad that I spent the time with the moments. Um, that that is especially true of the long goodbye, which, like I said, I found fascinating. I really appreciated watching it. But like a lot of Altman movies, I'm not sure I enjoyed it as a movie, but I appreciated the the goals and the the 
interesting like attempts and some of the stuff is fascinating because again it's it's like do i enjoy that the same song plays over and over and over again i think i do i'm not sure that i feel like that about the movie as a whole it's like i i appreciate this movie like i said maybe more than i enjoyed it but it is great to watch a movie like that i i find both of these movies i found kind of exhilarating to watch because in neither case was i just sort of like comfortably led into the movie but in both cases it's uh, a bit of a bit of a ride <laughs> as a viewer and uh, i appreciated that so phil how how do we do i appreciated the goals of the movie yes. raves jason yes, Snell right. of the Adopter. it is a movie that i appreciated <laughs> not as much as many other movies that i've seen i think as, as dr drink but jason you made people listening to the bootleg listen to the long goodbye over and over while we were starting i, I we did because i thought that was fitting yeah yeah. You were guided by the same instinct that made Robert Altman make you listen to the long goodbye yeah. over and no, over no. again. I, I, sure. I, lo- I love that about like that's a thing that in the cat food scene I will be talking about for this movie for men for a long time to come. <laughs> right. Like because like, like there is a magic to some things that are in the long goodbye, especially it's also true of the big sleep, but in the long goodbye where you can't believe what you're seeing and you think to yourself, I got to tell somebody about <laughs> about yeah, what I just saw, right? Precisely. Like, and that and that is not the same as saying, "Well, I sat there for two hours and I came out and I was like, wow, that was a great two hours." You know, my my feelings about it are more complex than that. But you can't deny that I walked away from the long goodbye with some things that will stick in my mind and that I will tell people. Like, did you ever see that movie where? And I'll explain something about the long goodbye, whether it's the naked yoga or looking for the cat and shopping for the cat food for a very long time, or just the fact that they go to Mexico and the mariachi version of the song is playing. So I I, I, I said earlier, uh, Robert Altman is the Marmite director, and that I mean that in either you I either love his movies or I hate them passionately. And um, uh, long goodbye, I love. I I I it is. It is so enjoyable to me, and and I'm I'm glad that people, if they didn't uh, uh, like it, at least uh, uh, went along with the ride because it's a fun ride, and um, you know, it, it, the big sleep is a fun ride too in its own sense. Yeah, yeah. No, I I was glad to visit uh, various Philip Marlowe's, <laughs> and I won't mention Altman movies I hate because we're among friends here with Monty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm used to it. Yeah, you would have to be. At this point. <laughs> so, uh, all right. The Old Movie Club is uh, in the books. This has been fascinating. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to watch more Robert Altman, I think, just to subject myself to him again. Right? Because I, I, it, there's something I, I don't even know how to describe it. it. There's something fascinating about somebody who obviously is brilliant and knows exactly what he's doing as an artist. And you may not like it, but you got to appreciate that it is an artist who knows exactly what he wants. You're like, all right. I, 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 if, if you, if you, uh, after watching this, you want to watch more Altman, I would suggest thieves like us, which I do like. And, um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which is one of those. Well, I appreciate what he's doing here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, true. It's- that's the, that's the Altman movie I watched most recently and it's supposed to be brilliant. And I'm like, what's, for a moment, I had some self doubt. I was like, "What's wrong with me? Why am I?" Well, first of all, that's a mumblecore movie too. <laughs> oh, oh my god! Man. If, you, if you think Elliot Gould mumbles his way through, I mean, a mumblecore western is the weirdest thing ever. I just wait, <laughs> wait until you see Walt, uh, Warren Beatty. Just. <laughs> I talk about Popeye a lot, but there are songs in there that I did not realize were songs the first time I watched the movie <laughs> because they are mumbled so much. 
Oh, God. All right. That wraps up this edition of the Old Movie Club. Uh, thank you, Philip Michaels, for selecting our movies. Thank you. This uh, episode is brought to you by Curry Brand Cat Food. And uh, for people who want to listen to more things about old movies, Shelley Brisbane, thank you for being here. And uh, thank you for hosting Lions, Towers, and Shields available right on this very podcast network. You bet you. And, and thank you for having me and letting me come on a podcast where I didn't have to do a 20-minute plot summary. It's, uh, it's a service that we provide. None of us. We, we advocated the plot summary. That's the beauty of these plots is that just forget about it. Uh, Monty Ashley, thank you. Bring back the conveniently timed thunderclap that was one of my favorite parts of the big sleep is how often a thunderclap happened right after someone said something cool <laughs> all right i'll get on it and uh dr drang thank you i think i'm getting cuter every minute <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of the incomparable we will see you next week <laughs> <laughs>